0: Welcome to Reformations, the podcast of the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. Today we welcome Martin Klauber. Uh, Martin Klauber teaches at the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois, and he is one of the recipients of a Meter Center fellowship. He is the holder of the Ibo van Helsema Fellowship for Pastors in the Reformed Tradition. He'll be spending a couple of weeks with us in the meter center to do some of his research and we're delighted martin to have you with us today to talk about your work in reformation studies in the field of calvin studies more generally so let's start by just having you tell us a little bit about yourself about where you're from and what led to your interests in reformation studies
1: i'm actually from upstate new york originally and studied french In junior high and high school, Mm -hmm. and uh, enjoyed history the whole time. And as I became a Christian, as a teenager, um, I became interested in the history of Christianity. Mm -hmm. After college, I attended seminary and was very interested in church history. Right. So I just continued to pursue it.
0: And why the Reformation rather than, say, I don't know, the early church or the 19th century?
1: I had a French background. I was a French major in college, mm-hmm. and I always was interested in all things French. Ironically, my mother was, uh, well, is, she's a musician. Mm-hmm. She's 93. Wow. It's her birthday this week. <laughs> and she wrote a paper When she was in graduate school on music under the Bourbon Kings of France. And I remember talking to her as a high school student around the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And I was the only one of the four children at all interested in that topic. But we would talk about uh, the Bourbon Kings. Sure. Over dinner, which I think is pretty unusual. I bet. Because I guarantee you, I have not had that conversation with my children.
0: No, no, probably not the first thing they want to talk about as you have dinner together. So the combination of French and faith and Reformation all kind of came together. It all came together. Absolutely.
1: Plus, I was inspired by great professors Mm -hmm. along the way. Uh, John Woodbridge was my advisor at Trinity when I was a student. Mm -hmm. And he's an expert in... um, Early modern France. The, the uh, he wrote his dissertation on the on the churches of the desert in France, mm-hmm. um, and wrote a major book on Louis the Fifteenth.
0: Right. So again, those things kind of came together, and then you worked with Bob Kingdon, correct?
1: Right. Uh, I decided to pursue a Ph.D. Um, Bob Kingdon was at University of Wisconsin, and I was accepted there, and he opened a whole new world. For me. Uh, the world of original research, the yep. world of archival material, which he really stressed. Yep. So I received pretty good training under him.
0: And, and Bob was such a good friend to the Meter Center over the oh, years. Oh, loved the Meter Center. It was just amazing. Um, you know, he served on our board as a member of the governing board, an external scholar. He did that twice. And then at the end, before even before his death, he left us his scholarly library. A lot of the books in the meter center, you open them up. It said, you know, book donated by Bob Kington. I did not know that. Oh, it's amazing. Wow. It's such a big gift. It was just incredible.
1: So what projects are you working on while you're here for this, for this fellowship? Uh, a number of things. I was working on this morning. I'm writing an introduction to a translation of a book. Book on natural law, actually. Okay. Written by Pierre de Laplace, mm-hmm. who was murdered during the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. Right? So I'm finishing that up. That's just about done. Mm-hmm. And the other project I'm working on is uh, a study of the Reformed pastors at Paris. Mm-hmm. There were a number of very prominent pastors. At the Reformed Church, just outside the city, because they weren't allowed to worship within the city limits. Yep. But these pastors were pastor scholars who mm-hmm. wrote some of the most important books in the 17th century about uh, uh, Reformed theology and participated uh, in. Many discussions and uh, corresponded with the Genevans on a number of issues. And it's the correspondence with the Genevans that the Meter Center has mm-hmm. microfilm of. And these originals are housed I- at the BPU in Geneva. Right. But the Meter Center has microfilm, which is so nice because yep. it's a lot easier to come here. Yep than to go to Geneva.
0: Chicago Grand Rapids is a little easier a little, than Chicago Grand easier. Geneva, yes, indeed. Right. More right. affordable, too.
1: More affordable. <laughs> and, and the resources are, are, are pretty amazing right. uh, in terms of uh, the micro uh, film reader that I'm using mm-hmm. uh, will allow a PDF yep. copies of these manuscripts. So I'm reading them here, but I'm going to take home some copies so I can go into more depth when I get home.
0: Absolutely. And for those who don't really have a good sense of them, describe a little bit the challenges of working with these documents.
1: The biggest challenge for me Mm -hmm. is the handwriting. Mm -hmm. My French is pretty good. Mm -hmm. So I I can understand that. Um, But sometimes it's very difficult to make out the words. Right. The words tend to run together. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes the script is written neatly, sometimes hastily. Right. Uh, when it's hasty, it's pretty hard. And they use abbreviations sometimes,
0: and R- names and are
1: hard to read. The spellings are different, too. Yep. Um, sometimes they'll use a Y instead of an I. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty familiar with that because I've read the books that are in print from that era. Sure. So older French is a little different than modern French, mm-hmm. but I can navigate that. It's it's really the handwriting. That's it's the handwriting chain. itself. I know. And some people have better handwriting than others.
0: <laughs> and you love the people with a good handwriting. Right. Yes. What's
1: What's interesting is the handwriting gets better. Yes. If you take the time of Calvin, uh, it's very difficult to mm-hmm. read Calvin's handwriting. Mm-hmm. But it gets better um, when you get to the end of the 17th century as opposed to the beginning of it or into the 16th century.
0: Yeah, I mean, handwriting was taught in certain ways. What I've always found amazing is that when you look at the same person writing in Latin and in French, they sometimes had two different handwritings.
1: That's interesting. I didn't know. They
0: had a Latin hand and a vernacular hand, and their handwriting was not identical between the two, which I find amazing.
1: Well, this particular author will... Uh, give some Latin citations, and and Greek, obviously, would be different. He has Greek citations, too.
0: Mm -hmm. So, tell us a little more about this community of French Protestants in Paris. How big was it? What would it be like to go worship there? Just give people a sense of what that experience might be about.
1: Um, According to the Edict of Nantes, 1598, they couldn't worship within a certain distance from the city. Mm -hmm. So they constructed a large church, um... A little town called Charenton, which is a suburb of Paris today. And they had fifteen thousand members. Wow. But remember it was it wasn't like there were a lot of churches that no. they could choose from. They had to go here. Yep. Uh, they had to travel there. Mm-hmm. And it was some distance. So some of them would take a boat ride, some of them would walk, the mm-hmm. wealthy would take a carriage. hmm Sometimes they would be mocked by onlookers mm-hmm. or people would throw things at them while they were on their way to to services so th- they did encounter some opposition um but they they came uh they had a, a consistory mm-hmm. they enforced discipline and they had to sometimes uh and they had the best preaching in all of France, in my opinion.
0: I'm sure they did. And when you went, you went kind of for the whole day, didn't you? You didn't just go for the morning service.
1: Right. It, it was a long day because yep. of the travel and, and then the length of the service. The sermons are are pretty intense. But if you read the sermons, they're full of theological content, obviously much more than most sermons today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, so
1: the lady were pretty well informed.
0: So you have a a fairly large community, a team of pastors, really, right? Not just one pastor doing all of this. Right. And these were really the leading pastors in France, right? One of the main communities, the reference points for French Protestants. And and
1: sometimes they would uh, have side gigs, like they would serve as a chaplain to a major member of the nobility or to the sister of the king, things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they always had to fend off the uh, the Roman Catholic priests who were attempting to convert their parishioners absolutely especially when they were on their deathbed right I was reading one story uh, yesterday uh-huh. where one of the pastors his name was Michel Lafosseur uh huh was attending a woman who was ill and the priest was trying to get her con- to convert uh, she was obviously dying right and he was trying to be quiet, respectful, but she remained steadfast in her faith. But he was attacked uh-huh. as a result of his efforts and suffered not a severe injury, but he was a little bit beat up Wow! afterwards. So it, it, it was difficult.
0: So the, the deathbed becomes this point of confessional contention.
1: It was. It wasn't unusual to have contending priests or pastors at the deathbed. Right. Trying to get that last (laughs) conversion.
0: (laughs) Just when you're probably not feeling at your best.
1: (laughs) Right, right.
0: People are there contending for the fate of your soul, as it were. Amazing. It's it's hard to realize maybe just how challenging it was where officially Protestants had some limited rights of existence, but even so, it was still a very contentious time.
1: It was. And and I think... uh, one of the things that helped them was that so many members of the high nobility mm-hmm. were Protestants. Yep. Otherwise, it would have been a, even more difficult. And even with that, mm-hmm. uh, they suffered. Yep. They paid a personal and political price, financial price, yep. for their belief. So those who remained in the faith were pretty strong.
0: Absolutely. Not included even the sister of the French king, Henry IV. Right. His sister was a leading Protestant noblewoman. Right. But she had a hard time with it. It wasn't easy for sure. Right. It wasn't easy for any of them. Especially after her brother went back to the Catholic Church. I think the pressure on her was actually enormous.
1: That was a major blow. Yeah. Because you had the king being a Protestant. Yep. And then converting. The famous line is, uh, Paris is worth a mass. Yep. But he really did convert to Roman Catholicism. Yes. It wasn't just a paper conversion. No. It was a real conversion.
0: And the question of his motivations is always an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it would be hard to imagine how he could have brought peace to France without that.
1: I, I don't think he could have. Yeah. But I, And I'm not sure uh, how strong his personal faith was, but it, it seems to me that he 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 had a, l- a level of faith but he also had many many mistresses yes so in terms of his personal conduct but i guess that wasn't unusual for yes. french kings yes for a man at the time it's not right.
0: necessarily and and whether he was protestant or catholic i don't think that made any difference it apparently
1: did not make any <laughs> difference it would be shocking today
0: potentially yes potentially. interesting interesting um, <laughs> so um You've done a lot of work on Geneva and France in the 17th, the 18th century. Um, What do you feel you've learned about the strengths and challenges that leaders and churches faced in this period? So people sometimes know quite a lot about the Reformation, but then by the time you get the 17th and 18th century, there's not as much attention paid to these periods. What would be some of the strengths and challenges that believers and leaders faced in these later periods, do you think?
1: Well, in France in particular, there was always the threat of conversion. Right. Back to Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Up to 1685, when the Edict of Nantes was revoked by mm-hmm. Louis XIV.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They would pay you, they would try to convince you. Uh, there would be so many inducements to convert, they would restrict uh, the kind of job you could have. Mm-hmm. And so, if you were in a profession, you could lose your profession. If yep. you didn't convert. Yep. So you always had that kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. And then after the revocation, uh, many hundreds of thousands left. Yep. And had to resettle. Yep. And many of them went to the Netherlands. I've looked a little bit at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was extremely difficult for the pastors because they had to leave their congregations. And there were actually too many pastors. Yep. In Holland, for example. Yep. And many of them were underemployed as a result of that. But the churches got really big there.
0: Yes, I'm sure. It was a revival almost for the older generation of French-speaking folks in the Netherlands who were Protestant. And then they got this new wave of arrivals from these refugees, basically.
1: Apparently their businesses didn't go as well.
0: I'm not surprised.
1: Um, I thought that, that... first thought that Holland would have been a great place to mm-hmm. start a business mm-hmm. because of his strategic location. But the, the French had a difficult time yep. reestablishing their business. Many of the businesses, even though they had public assistance, mm-hmm. uh, didn't make it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you could sort of see there'd be people who already had businesses established, and then these newcomers try and establish themselves. That's not that easy. Not that easy. Um, no. And then England was a place of refuge, obviously, Prussia, mm-hmm. and some people coming over to America
1: as well, right? Especially in the Carolinas. Yep. There were a lot of Huguenots that, that went there. That
0: actually settled in, in the right. North American side. And almost you'll meet people who are as proud of their Huguenot ancestors as if you came over on the Mayflower. It's a big yes. deal for some people, That's right? I've
1: had that conversation with some people.
0: Yep, it's quite fascinating. Um, so, if you look at the field of Reformation studies more generally, what do you see as some of the trends in the field of directions the field is taking? What, what, how has the field changed, I guess,
1: over the years you've been involved in Reformation studies? That's a good question. At, at the beginning, it was more intellectual history, mm-hmm. history of ideas. And the move in the last few decades has been more toward trying to figure out what the average person experienced yep and that's extremely difficult to find mm-hmm one way that uh, w- scholars have been able to to find more out is through looking at consistory records right there have been a lot of studies of these records um, Kingdon uh, has did an amazing job mm-hmm. in terms of funding yep I think he gave over a million dollars to the Consistory Project. I'm sure. To the transcription, and in some cases the translation yep. into English, yep. of the Consistory records dur- during Calvin's tenure in Geneva. Mm-hmm. And those records gives you an indication of what the average person was disciplined for. Right. And they'd be disciplined for a number of things. Mm-hmm. Things like... Somebody in the church would be talking while Calvin was preaching. Right. You know what were they doing? Why yep. would they? It's rude to talk while the pastor is preaching. Well, they were. Some of them were praying the rosary. Yes. During the service. Right. And they'd be disciplined for that. They
0: hadn't got the memo that we'd switched.
1: No, they didn't. Uh, they didn't fully understand. And so the other the other uh, area of change in the stu- study of the Reformation is is the process of confessionalization. Right. Which is how do you how do you change a population mm-hmm. that grew up Roman Catholic? Right. How do you change their belief structure? Just because the king or the Duke converts, the average person person's experience hasn't changed. Right. Their beliefs haven't changed. So how do you educate them? Right. And they did that through things like uh catechism.
3: Mm-hmm
1: requirement to attend a lot of sermons. Right. Um, and they would actually be interviewed by the, the elders of the church, at least in the Reformed communities, mm-hmm. before they could, were allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. Right. They had to recite the Apostles' Creed. They had to recite the Ten Commandments. Right. If the elder came, or the pastor came to your house and you were fighting with your spouse, that was a bad thing. Yes. And And they could tell by talking to someone... Mm -hmm. Um, where they were at and whether they were worthy. Right. And so excommunication, to some degree, uh, took the form not of saying you can't come to church, Mm -hmm. but you have to come to church more. Right. But you can't participate in the Eucharistic service. And they only had it four times a year. Right. And it was a separate service. Right. It wasn't part of the Sunday morning service like we would have today.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And people would get up and come forward so you wouldn't be noticed if you stayed in your
1: seat. You would be. And that you would, would be, be a big a big deal. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So so it, finding out what the average person felt like, mm-hmm. how they responded, and then how they what were the results of this confessionalization process? Did it affect a change in behavior? Right. Um a person's everyday life? Um what did they do that was different than they did before? And I, I think we get a better understanding as, as to what people's experiences were like. So Absolutely. much different from our own. Yep. Uh, it really opens a different world. How
0: do your students react? I mean, have you seen any changes in how students approach the Reformation from when you started teaching to now?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I teach in a seminary. Mm-hmm. So seminary students tend to be more interested in theological disputes. Yes. And I will tell you that that has not changed a bit. Right. They're still interested in, in those hot topics. Right. Um, they still love Calvin. Mm-hmm. They still, uh, but I, I make them read the Institute sometimes. Right. Uh, I make them buy it. Right. I make them read it, and then we discuss it. And, and part of my argument for that is you shouldn't graduate from seminary without having read the Institutes. That makes sense. Or at least parts of the yep. Institutes.
0: Yep, Does it change their preconceptions about Calvin to read the Institutes? Does it affect how they understand him as a reformer?
1: I think they have a hard time interacting with him. Mm-hmm. So in addition to just reading him, I, I think it's helpful to have a discussion. Right. Of a certain section. right. I don't think you can really discuss all of it in that context. Unless you had a seminar Mm -hmm. just on the institutes, which would be a good class to offer. Absolutely. Just on the institutes. You could spend a whole semester just walking through them. I've done it a couple of times. Right. But discussing them. Yep. Discussing topics, how Calvin responds to it, what's his style of writing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Because his style of writing was different than a lot of his contemporaries because he was trained as a humanist and used more of a rhetorical style. Absolutely. Which was designed to persuade, uh, to invoke some emotion among the reader as opposed to just a mere academic argument. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so I mean, we look at the Reformation, you look at the sermons, you know, an hour long, very heavy exegesis explanation of what the text is about and so on. And then you compare that perhaps to sermons in churches today, and it's a very different approach. So how do we really make sense of the Reformation in a church context today? It just seems so very different, so very foreign in some ways. How do, how do we, like even a seminarian... Looking at Calvin, is there any way they can integrate any of that in their own approach to ministry?
1: I think so. Mm-hmm. I, I I think uh, when you're preparing your sermons, if you're yep. a pastor, yep, that could be a good source. Mm-hmm. I literally jump out of my chair or the pew, depending <laughs> on where I am, when the pastor uses a a figure from church history as a as an illustration. Right. It seems that many pastors use their personal experience as illustrations.: Yes, which can be very effective. Mm-hmm. But if you couple that with key figures from the past, right, it really enriches a sermon, provides more depth to it, and yep. shows that this whole idea of the communion of saints yep. throughout the centuries, um, there, there's a sense of continuity with those who have come before us, that I think is very helpful and very powerful.
0: Absolutely. So uh, circling back to kind of where we started, and you're here for your research two weeks this summer and two weeks next summer, um, if someone else was thinking about, well, you know, should I come to Grand Rapids? Should I come to the Meter Center? Is it worth it? What would I get from it? What would you tell
1: them? Well, I would recommend anyone come here mm-hmm. because the resources are here. Mm-hmm the resources here are not generally available in most places mm-hmm. and when you're doing historical or theological research you, you need sources yep if you're going to do original research mm-hmm. you need the sources and you need to read them on their own terms right instead of just reading what someone else said about a source absolutely so this, that, that old humanist adage to go to the sources yep. is the key to doing scholarship. Yep. And they have the sources here. I found material here uh, that's really been helpful that I don't think I could have found if I were elsewhere.
0: That's very helpful, and I think it's a big inducement for people.
1: Right. This, this introduction to this book by Pierre de Laplace, mm-hmm. I, I'd never heard of this person before. Okay. When I was, got the assignment. Yep, And I look, there's never been an article that I could find that was written on him. Mm-hmm. And I come here, and guess what? I found a couple of articles written about him. There you go. And I found, I found material about him uh, covered in some secondary works that I hadn't thought of looking at. Right. So if I hadn't come here, I would have missed something. Yep. And I really don't want to publish anything where I've missed exactly. something I should have looked at.
0: Where the resources are, in fact, available. Exactly. exactly. Well, Martin, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about all this. Karen,
1: thank you for having me.